Consider a time when you set out to do one thing and came out on the other side with a totally different result. Sometimes things don't go as planned, but this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes the result is even better than what we wanted the original one to be. Take the example of the invention of the chocolate chip cookie. Ruth Wakefield just wanted to make some chocolate cookies. While she was making a batch of cookies, she realized that she didn't have enough baker's chocolate to finish the batch. So she broke up the chocolate she had into smaller pieces, thinking that they would spread to create a chocolate cookie. But instead, she got the chocolate chip cookie. And the outcome was even better than she would have expected. It became likely the most popular cookie in America. Or maybe you went into college thinking that you would be a political science major but decided you didn't really like it and stumbled upon economics instead. Or what about the Wall Street guy who realized he didn't like Wall Street, he liked math. So he decided to teach math instead. This phenomenon of having unexpected results is more common than we would expect. It may sound kind of meta, but throughout my podcasting experience, the same thing has happened where I start an episode having a certain view of a particular topic and finish the episode having a completely different take on it. So what if this is true for Teach for America? Let's start by taking a closer look at why Teach for America was created. Wendy Cobb started it as her senior thesis at Princeton, and mm -hmm. the first group got together in 1990 as a means of there are teacher shortages in inner cities and the poor rural south, and we are going to send educated, sharp, enthusiastic people to take care of those teacher shortages for a couple of years. That was Paul Hammond. He's a TFA alum who later went on to become a public school teacher. Paul seemed to notice the organization's change in direction as well. Now, when I go on Teach for America's website, I don't see the word shortage. Not only that, but it seems that public perception of Teach for America has shifted as well. From what I can gather, people seem to think that Teach for America was a great idea initially. There was a shortage, there were people with degrees who could fill it. But today, Teach for America has more of a mixed view and has several common criticisms. So in the beginning of this episode, I went to my point man for this entire project, my advisor and professor, Peter Retkoff. Peter is a professor of American studies at Kenyon College. He specializes in African-American studies, but also the theory of urban education. What do you personally think of Teach for America? And have you seen students get anything out of it? I've seen students, I've gotten a lot out of it immediately, but I can't think of any of them who have stayed in it very long, which is the larger critique of the program in the first place. They tend to lose continuity after two or three years, and that's been my experience with, you know, maybe a dozen students. And that's the biggest problem, that it's, you know, the goal, the ambition was to create a kind of liberal arts educated core of teachers, but instead of creating a, a group of kids who go in for two years and leave. And I think part of one of the flaws is that, it's got many, but one of the flaws is that 
it really doesn't give them much more than a week of training before letting them loose. And it's it's a really, really difficult experience for a 22-year-old to be on their own in a classroom or in four classrooms at the same time. It's It's surprisingly difficult. Okay, so they certainly have more than a week of training. I've heard that it's approximately five to seven weeks, but Peter does have a point. It's not enough training before they go out into the world and teach. His other point, that TFA teachers only stay for about two years before they move on, is also another common criticism and is extremely important. Paul described that as a stopgap for the solution. We'll talk more about that later. But those are likely the two most common criticisms of Teach for America. The other most common argument is likely the one that says that it discredits teachers who have full certification. In that sense, it's a threat to their job. If a school district can hire Teach for America teachers for very little, why wouldn't they? It is true, however, that certified teachers with master's degrees are certainly much more equipped than these Teach for America teachers to teach in a classroom. But the fear still exists. So let's consider this. Teach for America set out to fill the teacher shortage, right? And it has a number of problems, like the ones we've previously mentioned, right? So what problem is it actually solving instead? What if its unexpected result is this? By bringing teachers who are typically from upper middle class backgrounds to areas of people with generally lower incomes and bringing them together. What if it bridges a divide between these classes and provides exposure that both groups would not have otherwise, which can ultimately result in social mobility? Maybe that is Teach for America's unexpected result. In our first half, We'll be talking to Paul Hammond and uncovering why Teach for America isn't necessarily the educational solution. In our second half, we'll be talking to Miss Phoebe Rowe and her student, RJ, to look at a Teach for America experience that shows that maybe Teach for America is bridging a social divide. I'm Sophie Krzyzewski, and this is Pod V Board of Education. All right, everyone, pencils down. Your time for education inequality is officially up. Hi, I'm Sophie Krzyzewski, and welcome to Pod v. Board of Education, the podcast that seeks to do what Brown couldn't do. Make diversity not just a buzzword, but a reality in our schools. So before we get into it, Let's just establish what Teach for America actually does, for those who don't know. Teach for America was founded by Wendy Kopp in 1989 in order to overcome the teaching shortage in poorer parts of the United States. This applies to both rural areas and urban areas. So 
The idea was to take recent college graduates from top universities across the country to serve as teachers. These teachers, or core members as they're called, would commit to teach for at least two years in public schools. The core members are placed in various cities and areas around the country and teach a variety of different subjects and a variety of different grades. Okay, now that we have that covered, let's look at Paul's experience. After I posted on the Kenyan Alumni Network that I was looking to interview Teach for America alums, Paul reached out to me and wanted to talk about his experience. So I started by asking him, why TFA? How did he get from being a Kenyan student to being a Teach for America teacher? I had so many wonderful experiences with teachers. I mean, from all the way through, from when I was a little kid all the way up through through college. And I was an English major. And as a senior, I, 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 didn't, I wasn't interested in doing more school at that time. And Teach for America provided an opportunity for me to get right into a classroom. And so I did that. I don't want to say that I stumbled into teaching. It was something that I... I loved school, and teachers meant a lot to me, and it was something that I was always on the list. It just wasn't always number one. I left Kenyon in 92 and mm-hmm. taught sixth grade in an elementary school in rural Louisiana from 92 to 94. Then I asked Paul about his Teach for America training experience. What was that like? My year, we wound up at Cal State Northridge. We had professional development, some of which was required. I know classroom management was required. I know methods was required. They didn't take attendance or whatever, but I went to you know, everything I could. Classroom management sessions were really good. Some of the sessions were, were less so, but I kind of went in knowing that I didn't know what was going on. I went in knowing that I was not equipped. I went in knowing that I had to learn as much as possible. Uh, they bust us to some of the schools in the L.A. USB. Certainly not more than three weeks, if I remember correctly. I, it was not a very long time. I went up with a guy in a bilingual third grade, and it was difficult, obviously. You know, you go in for the first time, which in sense that you're new, and I tried to learn as much as I could from that teacher and then knew that when I got on the job in Louisiana that I would need to lean heavily on my experienced colleagues. The fact that Paul had been placed in a bilingual classroom struck me as odd. I asked him about this. Yes, I do not speak Spanish, but I learned enough of the terminology that I could teach math, you know, I learned the, the placeholders and whatever. You know, then of course when they were being taught in English, I could do, you know, reasonably well there. I don't want to pretend like I was that good at that point. I was not. I was learning. I was figuring it out. And so that was where I went. There was a little unusual that I was in a bilingual placement, but I still learned as much as I could from that brief stretch of time there. Do you think that you would have learned more or less from being in a regular classroom that wasn't bilingual? I don't think it would have made that much difference. I don't want to downplay the difficulties of being in a bilingual room, but the challenges of working with English language learners were not my number one fish to fry at that point. I had to figure out how to be in a classroom. I had to figure out management. I had to figure out the basics of how kids learned. So, you know, language was important, but I don't think I would have learned more in an English-only classroom. Then Paul told me a little bit about where he spent his two years with Teach for America. I wound up in a city called Leesville, Louisiana, which is an army town where Fort Polk is out there. And it was a little bit of an unusual situation. There was certainly some rural poverty in there, but two-thirds of my kids were army kids. 
you know, it's not like they were rich, but they knew where their next meal was coming from. They were going to be okay. One-third were very poor, rural poor. That was interesting as well. What I remember is because the, most of the teachers there were military spouses, and at the elementary school level, that means military wives for the most part. She was just delighted that I was going to stay for two years because the teachers were just going in and out, in and out, along with all the military appointments. I found this last part surprising, given that one of Teach for America's biggest criticisms is that there isn't enough continuity. Since teachers are leaving every two years, schools constantly have to refill this position, be it with another Teach for America core member or with a fully certified teacher. However, while some people in the North tend to think of Teach for America teachers as the equivalent of temps, for some in poor rural areas, Teach for America core members are truly the only option. Paul's first interaction with his principal during Teach for America illustrates this quite well. I showed up for my interview with the principal, and she asked me, why do you want to teach? And I gave some earnest and vague answer. And then she said, well, you want to teach, and I need a teacher. Let me show you your room. Seems simple enough, right? But nothing made me realize how real the teaching shortage was more than what Paul said next, when he told me a little bit about his principal's hiring practices. My principal did something that she called Walmart teachers, which is that she would literally go to Walmart in the middle of August and walk up to people there, shoppers or whoever, people she knew, I guess. It was a small town. I don't know. And she would say, do you have a college degree? And if the answer was yes, she would say, would you like to teach? That was how profound the shortage was. Keep in mind, this was five presidencies ago. It was 1992. But still, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. There were five sixth grade teachers when I got there. One was certified in Louisiana. One was certified in Virginia and had a separate certification there, and the other three of us were emergency certified. Two of us were um, Teach for America, and then the the other one was just, uh, I, guess, I guess you might call her a Walmart teacher. She was, she was on an emergency certification and didn't have, I, my understanding is she didn't even have the background that we had gotten with our few weeks in L.A. When Paul first said this, I didn't understand what he meant. I had no idea what an emergency certification was. But... When he explained it to me, it was clear that emergency certifications are why Teach for America is able to function. Okay, there's some requirements in order to have a certificate that if you don't meet them, you're like, okay, you don't have your coursework yet, or you, you haven't, you know, gotten your degrees yet. Or back then there was a test called the NPE that, you know, maybe you haven't passed that yet. But they still need a body in front of that classroom. And so you could get an emergency certification that would get you in there. And Teach for America sort of took advantage of, of that, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Teach for America's like, okay, we're going to prepare these 22-year-old people who want to get in front of a classroom, and we're going to put them in areas with persistent teacher shortages, and this is the kind of certification that they're going to get while they're there so that they'll be legal to teach in the state. It wasn't a full certification. It was assumed yes. that you were going to be taking steps along the way to eventually get right. full certification. And as a Teach for America teacher, that first year I took some classes 
so that I would be making progress towards it. And then my second year, I knew I wasn't coming back for a third, so the second year I didn't take any classes. I just focused on being in the classroom, and then then at the end of the year I, I moved on. So what did Paul do next? So I left Louisiana, and I got into an MFA program at the University of Pittsburgh and uh, decided, okay, I'm going to be a poet. I'm going to write poetry, and everybody's going to love me. And uh, and that that didn't work out. And then the second year, when I didn't get funded for the second year, and I also wasn't really enjoying it that much, I'm like, okay, and I missed teaching. So at that moment, it's like, okay, I'm, I want to teach. I think I want to teach high school English. I loved teaching sixth grade, but I don't know that I want to continue to do long division every year. I, I, I want to sort of go more towards my passion. Paul ended up doing exactly what Teach for America was designed to do, to produce teachers in order to solve the teacher shortage. At the time, Paul's path wasn't the most common, but today it's becoming much more common. Approximately 34% of Teach for America alums become pre-K through 12 teachers. 83% work in roles impacting education of low-income communities, which Teach for America defines as working directly in education, studying education full-time, or working in a job that impacts education and or low-income communities. Given that Paul has been both a Teach for America teacher and a fully certified teacher, I asked for his input on this. What is Teach for America actually doing? How close is it to what it says it's doing? Wendy Cobb started it as her senior thesis at Princeton, and mm -hmm. the first group got together in 1990 as a means of there are teacher shortages in inner cities and the poor rural south, and we are going to send educated, sharp, enthusiastic people to take care of those teacher shortages for a couple of years. Now, when I go on Teach for America's website, I don't see the word shortage. So I viewed Teach for America as a stopgap, a way to get people into classrooms that need a warm body for a couple of years. And I'm certainly going to be better than whoever my principal found at Walmart. But it's not a solution. It is a stopgap to a deeper societal inequity problem. Do you think that it's being used as a solution now, or is it somewhere in between that and a stopgap? I guess I don't want to speak for what Teach for America thinks it uses itself as. In, in my view, you know, okay, so you go, you teach for a couple of years, you leave, you become a doctor, you become a, an attorney, or you become a politician. I like that person. I do. That person is probably going to fight for change. But my, my worry, and there's a lot of debate within Teach for America circles about this, my worry is that the way that we can solve teacher shortages, at least make them a heck of a lot better, is setting aside the realm of whether this is realistic. If we tripled teacher salaries tomorrow, there would not be a teacher shortage. You know, just basic supply and demand. You would have people elbowing each other out of the way to get these jobs. And you'd have people willing to move to sort of distant areas like the ones I lived in. You'd have people willing to take down the challenges of an inner city classroom or a rural classroom. Right now, it's like, you know, if you're a math major and you can go make a ton of money somewhere else, why would you ever teach math? There's no reason economically to teach math. That's the solution we should be aiming for. 
teach for America by providing these excited 22-year-olds every year provides a way to not solve that more important problem. This part of the interview left me with a lot to think about. I knew Paul was right. Teach for America does serve as a kind of band-aid for the teaching shortage, or as Paul calls it, a stopgap. It allows us to keep putting off It allows off to it allows us to keep putting off solving a much greater problem, pay inequity. Paul is also right that we could theoretically kill two birds with one stone. If we want to end the teacher shortage, then we should pay teachers more. It's basic economics. Think about how many people want to become businessmen or lawyers or doctors simply because they pay so much. What would happen if teachers were included in this category? But in order to understand why we aren't doing this, we have to look at why teachers have historically been paid so little. I talked to Peter about this. Traditionally, public school teachers in America were women and grossly underpaid because they were regarded as second-class kinds of citizens in the pecking order. But that's still true, even though there is, like, a pretty decent balance of male and female teachers. Uh, the further up you go in the high school pecking order, the more men there are. But basically, elementary school teachers, very few male. Yeah, that's. A, I don't think I had a male teacher until middle school. Okay, there you go. So there's a whole sort of politics of gender equity involved in uh pay scale adjustments that doesn't take place in, in public American public education. So it's just is still that way because it was because it corresponded with gender in the past, so it still does. Yes. It really does. In short, because women have traditionally been paid less, roughly seventy five cents to a man's dollar and because teachers were traditionally women. Therefore, teachers are still paid less to this very day. So all of this together raises a much deeper question. Are our institutions so unwilling to be rid of pay inequity across genders and be rid of this prejudice that we're willing to sacrifice our children's education? Realizing this is kind of infuriating, but it also makes me realize that this is why education matters, because so many issues stem from educational problems. The gender gap is one of many. Despite all of this, Teach for America has been around for over 25 years now. They must know that they're a stopgap solution. And assuming they do know this, there must be another reason why they keep doing what they're doing. So, what is it? Stay tuned to find out. Teach for America. Teach for America. Teach for America.
who changed your life. Okay, got one? Now, imagine all of the things that could have happened in order to prevent you from having this teacher. Maybe the computer placed you in another class. Maybe that teacher decided to move to another state. Or maybe that teacher decided to do Teach for America. RJ falls into that third category. RJ is now a senior at Chalmette High School, which is just outside New Orleans. His life was changed when he was placed in Phoebe Rowe's English class in 10th grade. Miss Rowe was a TFA Corps member who had just started teaching at the school. And after talking to both of them and listening to what each of them had to say, it's clear to me that they are living proof that Teach for America really does change people's lives. I started by asking RJ what his high school is like. I live in Shellnet, which is like a small city or like town or whatever you want to call it, like right outside of New Orleans. So like a lot of the inner city kids who don't like, because like a lot of the schools in New Orleans are like very, um, like you have to have like a certain education to go there. But a lot of those kids don't have that education to go to those upper schools. So they come to Shellnet. So like, our school is very crowded. Like, there's so many kids. It's crazy. Like, and um, like in a regular class, there's gonna have like 25 to like 35 students. And um, and it's not really a lot of one-on-one -on -one work getting done, which a lot of the kids need. Like, especially me. But like, I guess it's all up to the students and their determination to get the one-on-one -on -one help. But yeah, there's not a lot of that. And so basically. The classes are just mainly like long lectures that that fly over our heads as most of the kids like just go to sleep or like play on their phones. But I mean, you know, we, we, we're teenagers, but I mean, like there are kids like me who like really try to stay on, on their um, work and stuff like that. But my school does offer a lot of like um, programs and clubs, but um, I don't know, like the kids just don't apply themselves. And also, it's like the way that a lot of people are raised in this um, lower income type of situation. Like, like we don't have like we're not we're not used to this. So like we need that extra motivation or that extra push to get to work. But um, I don't know if it's just whether it's just the teacher themselves or like the way they have to do certain things. But you know, they don't oftentimes motivate people to, you know, do it, because, I mean, I guess it's too much of a stress, I would imagine, trying to get 30 to 50 kids to, you know, try to push them as hard as they can and do their work when they're not trying to put in the effort themselves. That's why I I'll oftentimes come up with the idea of, like, like, I'm a big helper in my community. Like, I try my best to help out students um, when I can to motivate them, because I know that the teacher won't, and if the teacher attempts the teacher won't really understand coming from, you know, where they come from. They don't know how to, like, articulate the words to the students, but I do because I know the situation and where they come from and stuff like that. This last part is something I've heard a lot from many students of color, like RJ, because students of color don't feel understood by white teachers. So I suppose it makes sense that they may feel the same way 
when someone like Miss Rowe comes from a background of privilege and comes from Teach for America to teach them, they're being handed someone who simply doesn't understand them. It's for this reason that there's a large push for more people of color to become teachers. In fact, studies show that students of color succeed more when they have teachers of color. On this topic, professor of education policy at Stanford University, Linda Darling Hammond, said the following. Increasing teacher diversity is a very important strategy for improving learning for students of color and for closing achievement gaps. This logic also explains RJ's negative behavior towards Ms. Rowe when he first started in her class. The first day I entered her class, like, I had my shirt untucked, like, I was just, you know, my hair was on straight, but at the same time, I just was at a time where I was, like, more rebellious than I am now and more, um, not not understanding of things. So I walked in her class, I had my, my shirt tucked in. I think I had my headphones in. I wasn't sure, but I just was, I wasn't in my element. So as soon as I walked in the class, she, like, was right on me because that's all she knew, right? Like, going into, um, she did the, the, um, the program, you know, where the teachers come and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that's all she knows. That's that's all the school board told her is that, well, these kids, they're going to be rough. They're going to be like this. You have to treat them a certain way. So as soon as I walked in the class, she was fussing, tucking your shirt, do this, do that. So right off the bat, I didn't think that she would be one of those teachers who would, who would be nice to me. So I didn't feel as if I had to be nice to her. And it wasn't until we started actually doing writing um, assignments, because I love to write. And that's like one of my biggest ways I can express myself. If it's not talking, then I'm going to write it and hope that you understand me. But a lot of teachers don't, right? So the first writing assignment we had, I think it was like just to introduce ourselves and write about how we feel. And I wrote things on the paper like, well, I was depressed and I was going through this. But I didn't really think that, you know, she would care or, like, would take an interest into it. That was me, like, um, asking for help without really asking for help. Like, you know what I mean? That was just my way of trying to get some help. But she actually... She read it and she pulled me aside of class. She asked me what was going on. She pulled it out of me, you know. And um, once once I felt like I could trust her, I was more open with her. And we, we talked about things. We shared our lives and literature. And, yeah, that's just how it went from there. From then on, RJ enjoyed Miss Rose's English class. Not only because he enjoyed literature and writing, but because he knew that Miss Rowe was starting to understand him as well as his peers. And it wasn't until I guess she took an understanding of what what our high school was really like, and that we wasn't really we weren't really all just these horrible kids that that um were portrayed to be. Then she opened up to us. She started I don't know not just like a, not just lecturing us every day, more like holding conversations and, and watching videos and talking about it as opposed to just just doing work all day and her just sitting behind her desk not doing anything because we're quote-unquote bad kids or whatever. But it soon extended beyond the classroom. RJ and his friends would often spend their lunch period hanging out with and talking to Miss Rowe. At lunch, we were all, like, instead of just going hanging out with our friends, we would go back to Miss Rowe. And nine times out of ten, our friends would be right along with us going to um, talk to Miss Rowe because she was, like, our, you know, guidance counselor because... (laughs) The guidance counselor here is, you know, she's just the counselor, but 
Ms. Rose, like, a therapist. You could just sit and talk to her and, yeah, connect with her on that, that level that you can't really do with any other staff. It was during one of these lunch periods that Ms. Rose suggested that RJ apply to the Kenyan Young Writers Program, a creative writing program for high school students run by the Kenyan Review. One day when I went to her at lunch, instead of sitting with my friends, I went to her class, and she was like, um, there's a lot of young writers programs out there for you to do. And um, and this, the first one she mentioned was Kenyan, since she had went to college there, and how um, it good it would be for me, um, since I like to write and I like literature and all these other things. She said it would be great for me, especially. RJ had his doubts, though. Going into high school, I wasn't even sure that I wanted to go to college just because of, you know, so much anxiety that I just had with high school itself. College would be, you know, ten times worse, I thought. And she kept telling me about it, but I, I wasn't really, because, like, it sounded too good to be true. Like, she said that there were going to be kids, you know, archy kids like me, and there's going to be all these types of other things I could do there that basically it would be a vacation for me. And um, coming from where I come from, like, things that sound too good to be true, they come to be not true. So I just wasn't too engaged with it. But Miss Rowe was persistent. She saw a lot in RJ, so she continued to encourage him to apply. He's an excellent writer, and I, you know, I talked to him about this program. And like a mother, like, she really kept pushing it on me until the point where I was like, you know what, I would apply. It's like, what harm could it do? When I applied, I told my mother, she's just like, yeah, okay. And so I had my fingers crossed because I, I knew that even if I got accepted, I would probably have to pay for plane tickets and all this other stuff that I didn't have the money for. So I just kept my fingers crossed. And then a funny thing happened. He got in and they gave him a full scholarship, except there was one problem. But I still had to pay the ticket. So, you know, my mom was stressing, was like, no, you're not going to be able to go because I don't have the money for the ticket. So, you know, I was hard hurt because what I had expected was coming true, like that, that it was too good to be true and that I wouldn't be here because it would be my first time leaving Louisiana since Hurricane Katrina. So this is all that I know. But maybe it wasn't too good to be true because soon Kenyon sent him a plane ticket. And then they sent me the letter that they would pay for my plane ticket. And my mom was still scared. She wouldn't, she, she kept saying that she wasn't going to go because it was too far from home. And it wasn't until like maybe a week before that she finally was just like, I know that this is a big deal for you and I know how bad you want to go. So, you know, I'm going to let you go. From there, things only went up. RJ had an incredible experience at Kenyan Young Writers. He learned so much and met so many different people, including Peter Rutkoff. Naturally, watching RJ go to this program meant a lot to Miss Rowe. God, like talking to him about his experience at Kenyon, seeing my student at Kenyon, you know what I mean? Like yeah. my kid who was from New Orleans, like this kid does not spend time like in Amish country, you know what I mean? I think that to me is like, the most special convergence of cultures I could have ever imagined. But of course, out of everyone, it meant the most to RJ. When I asked him about his time at Kenyon, he said this. It was the best two weeks of my life. 
In telling this story, I don't want to pretend that RJ couldn't have done this on his own. He absolutely could have. But life is full of what-ifs. And it's clear that when Miss Rowe came into his life, his life changed. So I'm not telling their story to paint TFA as a savior. I'm telling their story as a piece of a larger puzzle. The one where we as Americans must determine how people from different classes can interact with each other without jealousy, prejudice, distaste, or resentment towards each other. And maybe, just maybe, Teach for America is the vehicle that can get us there. I'm Sophie Krzyzewski, and this has been Pod v. Board of Education. Thank you to everyone who helped make this episode possible, including Peter Rutkoff, Phoebe Rowe, Paul Hammond, RJ, Kevin Pan, and everyone at TPF. And of course, thanks to you, the listeners. Otherwise, I'd be talking into the void. Thank you.